Speak by Laurie Hall Sanderson. First marking period. Welcome to Merriweather High. It is my first morning of high school. I have seven new notebooks, a skirt I hate, and a stomachache. The school bus wheezes to my corner. The door opens and I step up. I am the first pickup of the day. The driver pulls away from the curb while I stand in the aisle. Where to sit? I've never been a backseat waste case. If I sit in the middle, a stranger could sit next to me. If I sit in the front, it will make me look like a little kid. But I figure it's the best chance I have to make eye contact with one of my friends, if any of them have decided to talk to me yet. The bus picks up students in groups of four or five. As they walk down the aisle, people who were my middle school lab partners or gym buddies glare at me. I close my eyes. This is what I've been dreading. As we leave the last stop, I am the only person sitting alone. The driver downshifts to drag us over the hills. The engine clanks, which makes the guys in the back holler something obscene. Someone's wearing too much cologne. I try to open my window, but the little latches won't move. A guy behind me unwraps his breakfast and shoots the wrapper at the back of my head. It bounces into my lap. A ho-ho. We pass janitors, painting over the sign in front of the high school. The school board has decided that Merriweather High, home of the Trojans, didn't send a strong abstinence message. So they've transformed us into the Blue Devils. Better the devil you know than the Trojan you don't, I guess. School colors will stay purple and gray. The board didn't want to spring for new uniforms. Older students are allowed to roam until the bell, but ninth graders are herded into the auditorium. We fall into clans. Jocks, country clubbers, idiot savants, cheerleaders, human waste, Euro trash, future fascists of America, big hair chicks, the Marthas, suffering artists, thespians, goths, shredders. I am clanless. I wasted the last weeks of August watching bad cartoons. I didn't go to the mall, the lake, or the pool, or answer the phone. I've entered high school with the wrong hair, the wrong clothes, the wrong attitude, and I don't have anyone to sit with. I am outcast. There's no point looking for my ex-friends. Our clan, the Plain Janes, has splintered and the pieces are being absorbed by rival factions. Nicole lounges with the jocks, comparing scars from summer league sports. Ivy floats between the suffering artists on one side of the aisle and the thespians on the other. She has enough personality to travel with two packs. Jessica has moved away to Nevada. No real loss. She was mostly Ivy's friend anyway. The kids behind me laugh so loud I know they're laughing about me. I can't help myself. I turn around. It's Rachel, surrounded by a bunch of kids wearing clothes that most definitely did not come from the East Side Mall. Rachel Bruin, my ex-best friend. She stares at something above my left ear. Words climb up my throat. This was the girl who suffered through brownies with me, who taught me how to swim, who understood about my parents, who didn't make fun of my bedroom. If there's anyone in the entire galaxy I'm dying to tell what really happened, it's Rachel. My throat burns. Her eyes meet mine for a second. I hate you, she mouths silently. She turns her back to me and laughs with her friends. I bite my lip. I'm not going to think about it. It was ugly, but it's over, and I'm not going to think about it. My lip bleeds a little. It tastes like metal. I need to sit down. I stand in the center aisle of the auditorium, a wounded zebra in a National Geographic special, looking for someone, anyone, to sit next to. A predator approaches. Gray jock buzz cut. Whistle round the neck thicker than his head. 
probably a social studies teacher hired to coach a blood sport. Mr. Neck. Sit. I grab a seat. Another wounded zebra turns and smiles at me. She's packing at least five grand worth of orthodontia, but has great shoes. I'm Heather from Ohio, she says. I'm new here. Are you? I don't have time to answer. The lights dim and the indoctrination begins. The first ten lies they tell you in high school. One, we are here to help you. Two, you will have enough time to get to your class before the bell rings. Three, the dress code will be enforced. Four, no smoking is allowed on school grounds. Five, our football team will win the championship this year. Six, we expect more of you here. Seven, guidance counselors are always available to listen. Eight, your schedule was created with your needs in mind. Nine, your locker combination is private. Ten, these will be the years you look back on fondly. My first class is biology. I can't find it and get my first demerit for wandering the hall. It is 8.50 in the morning, only 699 days and seven class periods until graduation. Our teachers are the best. My English teacher has no face. She has uncombed stringy hair that droops on her shoulders. The hair is black from her part to her ears and then neon orange to the frizzy ends. I can't decide if she had pissed off her hairdresser or is morphing into a monarch butterfly. I call her Hair Woman. Hair Woman wastes 20 minutes taking attendance because she won't look at us. She keeps her head bent over her desk so the hair flops in front of her face. She spends the rest of class writing on the board and speaking to the flag about our required reading. She wants us to write in our class journals every day but promises not to read them. I write about how weird she is. We have journals and social studies, too. The school must have gotten a good price on journals. We're studying American history for the ninth time in nine years. Another review of map skills, one week of Native Americans, Christopher Columbus in time for Columbus Day, the Pilgrims in time for Thanksgiving. Every year they say we're going to get right up to the present, but we always get stuck in the Industrial Revolution. We got to World War I in seventh grade. Who knew there had been a war with the whole world? We need more holidays to keep the social studies teachers on track. My social studies teacher is Mr. Neck, the same guy who growled at me to sit down in the auditorium. He remembers me fondly. I got my eye on you, front row. Nice seeing you again, too. I bet he suffers from post-traumatic stress disorder, Vietnam or Iraq, one of those TV wars. Spotlight. I find my locker after social studies. The lock sticks a little, but I open it. I dive into the stream of fourth-period lunch students and swim down the hall to the cafeteria. I know enough not to bring lunch on the first day of high school. There's no way of telling what the acceptable fashion will be. Brown bags, humble testament to suburbia, or terminal geek gear. Insulated lunch bags, hip way to save the planet, or sign of an over-involved mother. Buying is the only solution and it gives me time to scan the cafeteria for a friendly face or an inconspicuous corner. The hot lunch is turkey with reconstituted dried mashed potatoes and gravy, a damp green vegetable, and a cookie. I'm not sure how to order anything else, so I just slide my tray along and let the lunch drones fill it. This eight-foot senior in front of me somehow gets three cheeseburgers, french fries, and two ho-hos without saying a word. Some sort of Morse code with his eyes, maybe. Must study this further. 
I follow the basketball pole into the cafeteria. I see a few friends, people I used to think were my friends, but they look away. Think fast, think fast. There's that new girl, Heather, reading by the window. I could sit across from her, or I could crawl behind a trash can. Or maybe I could dump my lunch straight into the trash and keep moving right out the door. The basketball pole waves to a table of friends. Of course, the basketball team. They all swear at him. A bizarre greeting practiced by athletic boys with zits. He smiles and throws a ho-ho. I try to scoot around him. Thwop! A lump of potatoes and gravy hits me square in the center of my chest. All conversation stops as the entire lunchroom gawks, my face burning into their retinas. I will be forever known as that girl who got nailed by potatoes the first day. The basketball pole apologizes and says something else, but 400 people explode in laughter, and I can't read lips. I ditch my tray and bolt for the door. I motor so fast out of the lunchroom, the track coach would draft me for varsity if he were around. But no, Mr. Neck has cafeteria duty. And Mr. Neck has no use for girls who can run the 100 in under 10 seconds, unless they're willing to do it while holding on to a football. Mr. Neck. We meet again. Me. Would he listen to, I need to go home and change? Or, did you see what that bozo did? Not a chance. I keep my mouth shut. Mr. Neck. Where do you think you're going? Me. It is easier not to say anything. Shut your trap, button your lip, can it. All that crap you hear on TV about communication and expressing feelings is a lie. Nobody really wants to hear what you have to say. Mr. Neck makes a note in his book. I knew you were trouble the first time I saw you. I've taught here for 24 years, and I can tell what's going on in a kid's head just by looking in their eyes. No more warnings. You just earned a demerit for wandering the halls without a pass. Sanctuary. Art follows lunch like dream follows nightmare. The classroom is at the far end of the building and has long, self-facing windows. The sun doesn't shine much in Syracuse, so the art room is designed to get every bit of light it can. It is dusty in a clean dirt kind of way. The floor is layered with dry splotches of paint. The walls plastered with sketches of tormented teenagers and fat puppies. The shelves crowded with clay pots. A radio plays my favorite station. Mr. Freeman is ugly. Big old grasshopper body like a stilt-walking circus guy. Nose like a credit card sunk between his eyes. But he smiles at us as we file in a class. He's hunched over a spinning pot, his hands muddy red. Welcome to the only class that'll teach you how to survive, he says. Welcome to art. I sit at a table close to his desk. Ivy is in this class. She sits by the door. I keep staring at her, trying to make her look at me. That happens in movies. People can feel it when other people stare at them, and they just have to turn around and say something. Either Ivy has a great force field, or my laser vision isn't very strong. She won't look back at me. I wish I could sit with her. She knows art. Mr. Freeman turns off the wheel and grabs a piece of chalk without washing his hands. Soul, he writes on the board. The clay streaks the word like dried blood. This is where you can find your soul if you dare. Where you can touch that part of you that you've never dared look at before. Do not come here and ask me to show you how to draw a face. Ask me to help you find the wind. I sneak a peek behind me. The eyebrow telegraph is flashing fast. This guy is weird. He must see it. 
He must know what we're thinking. He keeps on talking. He says we will graduate knowing how to read and write because we'll spend a million hours learning how to read and write. I could argue that point. Mr. Freeman, why not spend that time on art? Painting, sculpting, charcoal, pastel, oils? Are words or numbers more important than images? Who decided this? Does algebra move you to tears? Hands raised, thinking he wants answers. Can the plural possessive express the feelings in your heart? If you don't learn art now, you will never learn to breathe. There's more. For someone who questions the value of words, he sure uses a lot of them. I tune out for a while, and I come back when he holds up a huge globe that's missing half of the northern hemisphere. Can anyone tell me what this is? He asks. A globe? Ventures a voice in the back. Mr. Freeman rolls his eyes. Was it an expensive sculpture that some kid dropped and he had to pay for out of his own money, or they didn't let him graduate? Asks another. Mr. Freeman sighs. No imagination. What are you, 13, 14? You've already let them beat your creativity out of you? This is an old globe I used to let my daughters kick around my studio when it was too wet to play outside. One day, Jenny put her foot right through Texas, and the United States crumbled into the sea. And voila, an idea. This broken ball could be used to express such powerful visions. You could paint a picture of it, with people fleeing from the hole. With a wet-muzzled dog chewing Alaska, the opportunities are endless. It's almost too much but you're important enough to give it to. Huh? You will each pick a piece of paper out of the globe. He walks around the room so we can pull red scraps from the center of the earth. On the paper, you will find one word, the name of an object. I hope you like it. You will spend the rest of the year learning how to turn that object into a piece of art. You will sculpt it. You will sketch it, paper mache it, carve it. If the computer teacher is talking to me this year, you can use the lab for computer-aided designs. But there's a catch. By the end of the year, you must figure out how to make your object say something, express an emotion, speak to every person who looks at it. Some people groan. My stomach flutters. Can you really let us do this? Sounds like too much fun. He stops at my table. I plunge my hand into the bottom of the globe and fish out my paper. Tree. Tree. It's too easy. I learned how to draw a tree in second grade. I reach in for another piece of paper. Mr. Freeman shakes his head. Ah, 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 he says. You just chose your destiny. You can't change that. He pulls a bucket of clay from under the pottery wheel, breaks off fist-sized balls, and tosses one to each of us. Then he turns up the radio and laughs. Welcome to the journey. Espanol. My Spanish teacher is going to try to get through the entire year without speaking English to us. This is both amusing and useful. Makes it much easier to ignore her. She communicates through exaggerated gestures and play acting. It's like taking a class in charades. She says a sentence in Spanish and puts the back of her hand to her forehead. You have a fever, someone from class calls out. She shakes her head no and repeats the gesture. You feel faint? No. She goes out to the hall, then bursts through the door, looking busy and distracted. She turns to us, acts surprised to see us, then does the bit with the back of the hand to the forehead. You're lost. You're angry. You're in the wrong school. You're in the wrong country. You're on the wrong planet. She tries one more time and smacks herself so hard on the forehead she staggers a bit. 
Her forehead is as pink as her lipstick. The guesses continue. You can't believe how many kids are in this class. You forgot how to speak Spanish. You have a migraine. You're gonna have a migraine if we don't figure it out. In desperation, she writes a sentence in Spanish on the board. Me sorprende que estoy tan cansada hoy. No one knows what it says. We don't understand Spanish. That's why we're here. Finally, some brain gets out the Spanish-English dictionary. We spend the rest of the period trying to translate the sentence. When the bell rings, we've gotten as far as to exhaust the day to surprise. Home. Work. I make it through the first two weeks of school without a nuclear meltdown. Heather from Ohio sits with me at lunch and calls to talk about English homework. She can talk for hours. All I have to do is prop the phone against my ear and, uh uh-huh, occasionally while I surf the cable. Rachel and every other person I've known for nine years continue to ignore me. I'm getting bumped a lot in the halls. A few times my books were accidentally ripped from my arms and pitched to the floor. I try not to dwell on it. It has to go away eventually. At first, Mom was pretty good about preparing dinners in the morning and sticking them in the fridge. But I knew it would end. I come home to a note that says pizza, 555-4892. Small tip this time. Clip to the notes a $20 bill. My family has a good system. We communicate with notes on the kitchen counter. I write when I need school supplies or a ride to the mall. They write what time they'll be home from work and if I should thaw anything. What else is there to say? Mom's having staff problems again. My mother manages Efforts, a clothing store downtown. Her boss offered her the branch at the mall, but she didn't want it. I think she likes watching the reaction when she says she works in the city. Aren't you afraid? People ask. I would never work there in a million years. Mom loves doing the things that other people are afraid of. She could have been a snake handler. But the downtown location makes it hard to find people to work for her. Daily shoplifters, bums peeing on the front door, and the occasional armed robbery discourage job seekers. Go figure. We're now two weeks into September, she's already thinking about Christmas. She has plastic snowflakes and red felt-wearing Santas on the brain. If she can't find enough employees for September, she'll be in deep doo-doo when the holiday season hits. I order my dinner at 310 and eat it on the white couch. I don't know which parent was having seizures when they bought that couch. The trick to eating on it is to turn the messy side of the cushions up. The couch has two personalities, Melinda inhaling pepperoni and mushroom, and no one ever eats in the family room, no ma'am. I chow and watch TV until I hear Dad's Jeep in the driveway. Flip, 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 cushions reverse to show their pretty white cheeks, then bolt upstairs. By the time Dad unlocks the door, everything looks the way he wants to see it, and I have vanished. My room belongs to an alien. It is a postcard of who I was in fifth grade. I went through a demented phase when I thought that roses should cover everything, and pink was a great color. It was all Rachel's fault. She begged her mom to let her do her room over, so we all ended up with new rooms. Nicole refused to put the stupid little skirt around her nightstand, and Ivy had gone way over the top as usual. Jessica did hers in a desert and cow dudes theme. My room was stuck in the middle, a bit stolen from everyone else. The only things that were really mine were my stuffed rabbit collection from when I was a little kid and my canopy bed. No matter how much Nicole teased me, I wouldn't take the canopy down. I'm thinking about changing the rose wallpaper, but then mom would get involved and dad would measure the walls and they'd argue about paint color. 
I don't know what I want it to look like anyway. Homework is not an option. My bed is sending out serious nap rays. I can't help myself. The fluffy pillows and warm comforter are more powerful than I am. I have no choice but to snuggle under the covers. I hear Dad turn on the television. Clink, clink, clink. He drops ice cubes and a heavy-bottomed glass and pours in some booze. He opens the microwave for the pizza, I guess, slams it closed, then beep-beeps the timer. I turn on my radio so he'll know I'm home. I won't take a real nap. I have this halfway place, a rest stop on the road to sleep, where I can stay for hours. I don't even need to close my eyes, just stay safe under the covers and breathe. Dad turns up the volume on the TV. The news team anchor dude bellows, five dead in house fire, young girl attacked, teen suspected in gas station holdup. I nibble on a scab on my lower lip. Dad hops from channel to channel, watching the same stories play over and over. I watch myself in the mirror across the room. Ugh. My hair is completely hidden under the comforter. I look for the shapes in my face. Could I put a face in my tree? Like a dryad from Greek mythology? Two muddy circle eyes under black dash eyebrows, piggy nose nostrils, and a chewed up horror of a mouth. Definitely not a dryad face. I can't stop biting my lips. It looks like my mouth belongs to someone else, someone I don't even know. I get out of bed and take down the mirror. I put it in the back of my closet, facing the wall. <laughs>